Okay, there we go. All right, we're in Revelation today, chapter 1. Have you ever seen one of the many portraits of the Lord Jesus that artists have painted? I remember one being in the church where I grew up, and that image of his face still impacts my mind from time to time. There are many such renditions of Christ in churches and homes and books and even in some Bibles. And uh, the one thing they all have in common is that they don't look like Jesus. The Bible gives us no information about his physical appearance, color of his hair, color of his eyes, how tall he was. Nothing is revealed about him. And why is that? Well, because it's far more important to us to know who he was and what he did to save us from our sins, his physical features were really insignificant. And yet, Jesus did describe himself in many ways through those statements in John's Gospel where he said, I am, for instance, the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. And he revealed his person and his works, what he was for his people, what he would do for his people. And those statements actually continue after his resurrection and ascension back into heaven. The Apostle John was privileged to see Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end in his glorified state. He gives us Uh, the only physical description that we have of the Lord, but even then his identity is shrouded by spiritual symbolism. And the vision given to John here describes the Lord Jesus in his exalted glory. And it's a glimpse of how we will see him someday, as John wrote in his first epistle, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now in this vision, the apostle sees Christ in three ways. First of all, the exalted Lord commissions his servant in verses 9 through 11. And he is to write down what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches that are named here. Then, in the next few verses, the exalted Lord comes to his servant in his unveiled glory. And the apostle describes what he sees in the best way that he can. And finally, the exalted Lord comforts his servant, who falls down before him as though dead. And so this morning, as we come before the Lord's table, let's be encouraged at the prospect of one day being with the Alpha and Omega in glory. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again today for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that one day we will see him because he died for us, and through his salvation, we will one day enter glory. We pray, Lord, as we 
uh, think about what Christ did for us and what he became as a result of that and what we will become, that our hearts will be lifted up with thanksgiving and praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, as we look at verse uh, uh, 9 through 11 in chapter 1 this morning, we see that the Alpha and Omega commissions his servant. And as John describes his circumstances surrounding Christ's revelation, we're reminded of a couple of truths. First of all, in verse 9, our exalted Lord can use us in all circumstances of life to carry out his purposes. Now let's take a look here at how the apostle identifies himself with the church. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion. He does not appeal to his calling as an apostle here, uh, or his leader, uh, leadership position as the elder of the church at Ephesus, uh, from which he has been banned. He introduced himself as a brother, a fellow member in the family of God. So he's on the same plane as everybody else to those whom he ministers. And we're all brothers and sisters in Christ if we know the Lord Jesus. We have different gifts, different abilities to use for his glory and for his honor. And there should never be a sense of superiority or inferiority in the people of God in their local assemblies. He also speaks of himself here as their companion, which means a a sharer or a partner with those he addresses. And this alludes to the fellowship that the saints have together because of the relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this respect, he mentions three areas of fellowship. He mentions tribulation, kingdom, and patience. Now, the main thought is that of tribulation or affliction, which uh, is related to the idea of, of being under pressure. You ever feel under pressure in your life? There are all kinds of situations where we feel pressed down upon. But because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, uh, and especially back in Paul's day, there are certain pressures that may come upon us. In Paul's time, uh, the church was under the pressure of unbelieving Jews, of pagan worshipers, of the, the Roman government from time to time. They faced loss of income, loss of respect, loss of family members, and loss of protection because of their faith. So they often experienced oppression and distress from the world. And uh, 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 John is associating himself with that. Now the kingdom is the kingdom of God, not visible to man, but just as real as human nations are. And it's because we belong to that kingdom uh, that we will face varying degrees of tribulation and hardship. And then he mentions here uh, the idea of uh, suffering and its result. Suffering in the kingdom is going to require patience from its people. And this refers to patient endurance under trial, under difficulty, under adverse circumstances. And of course, we're able to do this 
because we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is associated with our relationship to him. Now, the apostle at this time of his life was facing some tribulation. He had been exiled by Roman authorities to a small island in the Aegean Sea that is called Patmos. And this island was about 40 miles from the coastal city of Miletus. Uh, that was not real far from Ephesus. And it was not a very pleasant place. It was only uh, about six miles wide and 10 miles long. It was rocky and barren. And it was actually a penal colony for political prisoners. Some of the early church fathers write that John labored in the mines that were located there. And you got to remember, this is around 95 AD, and the apostle John is in his mid-90s, having to submit to this kind of situation. And John says he was there for a reason, that being the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he was there because he was faithfully preaching the word of God. He was bearing a testimony for the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did to save people from their sins. And uh, during this period of time, the Roman government was coming down on that kind of thing. And so he is banned from his church. He is sent off to this island. Uh, fortunately, he's only there for about 18 months. But in these circumstances, the Lord still uses John to write the last book of the Bible, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the power of Rome could not stop the purpose of God. And being confined on that tiny island away from normal civilization was the perfect place for Christ to come to John and reveal himself in this unveiled glory. So it doesn't really matter what we're going through in life. We can still serve the Lord. He can still use us. And even though we're going through difficult time, we still can be used of the Lord and be a witness for him. Now, the second truth we're reminded of here in verses 10 and 11 is that our exalted Lord inspires his messages to the church. The Bible tells us elsewhere, Paul wrote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And here we have an example of that playing out as this um, uh, revelation is given to the apostle John. Uh, John explains uh, what's going on here when this all happens in verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. When John received these visions of the Lord, he was under the full control of the Holy Spirit. He was drawn away from the senses of this world, and he was made fully aware of heavenly things that exist beyond the realm of the physical and material. Now, some believe that, as he mentions here, the Lord's day, that he means the day of the Lord, and the Spirit's drawing him to the future day of the Lord to describe some things that are going to be happening there. However, uh, there is a, an exact phrase that is translated several other places 
day of the Lord, and that phrase is not used here. As a matter of fact, this is the only time you see the Lord's day in the Bible. The structure uh, of the Lord's Supper, we also find in the Bible, is the same structure. So those two times are the only times you see the Lord's then something like day or supper behind it. So this seems to uh, indicate to us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which was the first day of the week, the day of worship, Sunday. And although it's something that's not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, in this last uh, revelation of the Lord, uh, it seems the early church now picks up on it, and we find it being spoken of more and more and more as the second century moves forward. So we, we interpret that to be Sunday, the Lord's day, he's in the spirit, and I wonder how much we're in the spirit on the Lord's day. We can't be in the spirit the same way John was, but we certainly ought to be operating under the power of the Holy Spirit when we gather together to worship the Lord on his day. Now, as John is in the spirit, he hears something. He hears a loud voice like a trumpet. I don't know if you any kids in school uh, are going to play the trumpet, but a trumpet can be really loud. Uh, we've had folks here that play the trumpet, and uh, it's almost sometimes ear-splitting. And back in those days, the trumpet wasn't like a modern-day trumpet. It was more like, um, uh, sometimes it was even made out of a horn. But when that trumpet sounded, it had a purpose. Sometimes the trumpet sounded to call people to worship. Sometimes the trumpet sounded to call people to war. It did have a purpose. So when John hears this loud voice like a trumpet, it draws his attention immediately as it would us as well. And it says here that this voice speaks to him and we know the voice is speaking uh, the Lord Jesus is speaking because of the name that's given. We have that I am introduction. The voice shouts out like a trumpet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So Jesus, again, is coming to him and he's going to give him uh, more information as to what he wants him to do, what he commissions him to do. And this is another self-description of the Lord in his exalted state, of glory. And uh, the Lord Jesus speaks to him and he says, what you see, I want you to write down in a book and I want you to send this to the seven churches that are named here. Now we're not going to name them and talk about them now because that will occur later. But this is his commission. And incidentally, the, the word book there now, you know that back at that time, they didn't actually write books like we have bound today. They wrote on scrolls. And uh, those scrolls were around 15 feet long, and you could roll them up from both ends. And the term book here, though, interestingly, is the Greek word biblos, which sounds like what? Bible. That's where we get the term Bible from, is this particular word. So he's commissioning uh, John, even though John is suffering tribulation, and John's separated from his church, and John's kind of probably all alone there, he's 
giving him this revelation, there will be messengers who come to him who will take that and spread it to these churches. And of course, this becomes part of God's inspired word. So John has been chosen by the Lord to write the Gospel of John, three epistles, and now this last book of the Bible about the uh, the consummation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these were written for the benefit of the church, and they were inspired by God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And all this is stated uh, in these works of John and all the other biblical authors. Uh, these are true things, and they're profitable for God's people. So the Lord inspires his messages. Now, this brings us to the description here of the Alpha and the Omega in his unveiled glory. And the first thing that John notices now is the position of this person who is speaking to him. And verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Now, of course, the voice is not just the voice. It is a person. And he turns because the voice was behind him. And he wants to see where it's coming from. And it's been identified as a person. And having turned, what does he see? The first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. Now, these lampstands uh, are reminiscent of some images in the Old Testament. You remember that both in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was a lampstand. We call it a menorah today. And it was made of gold. It was uh, set in the holy place. And it had uh, seven uh, uh, arms, if you will, that, that held a a place where oil could be put and lit and thus create light. And that symbolism was for Israel to understand that they were to be a light to the nations. Uh, As John sees this picture of the seven lampstands, he doesn't just see one, he sees seven individual ones, separate ones. They probably only have one lamp upon them, so they're different in that way. They are made of gold, precious metal, and as these are identified later by the Lord Jesus, these represent the churches. And so what are the churches now? They are the representative of Christ. They give the light of the world of Christ. He's not the lamps. He's walking amidst the lamps. But the churches are now the light to the world of the Lord Jesus Christ as corporate bodies, but as members that make up the church as well. And there's other uh, ways that Jesus has spoken about that in his own teaching and preaching. Now, the apostle sees next a person. In the midst, verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So now he sees a person who looks like a Son of Man. He's got human form. And this again reminds us of what? It reminds us of the Lord Jesus. His favorite self-designation during his ministry was what? It was Son of Man. Excuse me. 
So Son of Man, being his self-designation, uh, identifies him with a lot of prophetic messages in the Old Testament. One of those was uh, given to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Remember the vision of the Ancient of Days? And one comes to the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom, and that person is identified as Son of Man. Now we have the book of Revelation that's really fulfilling aspects of that Old Testament vision. So Jesus associates himself uh, with Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah in that terminology. He also associates himself as the one who comes to, to save his people, identify with those he saves, and uh, also it alludes to his suffering and his experience as a human being. So all these things are involved in that name, Son of Man. Now we see him, though, as the glorified Son of Man who walks in the midst of his churches. And his presence and power are always available to his church. As he sees the Son of Man, he sees him clothed in a particular garment. Verse 13 <clears throat> He's clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band or a golden sash. Now, this uh, may seem to indicate perhaps a priestly robe. However, when we think about the context here, it more likely alludes to the robe of a judge. And it's a, a robe that uh, is dignified and, and reflects the office of the person who wears it. Now, in the context, as we go on in this book of, of uh, Revelation, we see that Christ is assessing the seven churches. He is, in a sense, judging their attitudes and their works and making an assessment. Also, the motif of judgment really controls the whole book of Revelation. So we have here displayed the Son of Man in his role as the just judge of the churches in of the unsaved world as it moves forward. Now, beginning in verse 14, we have a description of his glorious appearance. Now, up to this point, all that John has heard and seen is certainly awesome and amazing. It's something that few people have ever experienced. A few of the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah and Ezekiel, Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration of Christ, perhaps Paul when he was taken up into heaven and saw things that he was forbidden to write about, uh, saw things similar to what John explains to us here. And what John sees now is going to go beyond awe. It's going to the point of fear. So let's try to imagine what he next describes. And he describes the aspects of a person, but again, we don't see something that we would normally think of that describes a person. This is Christ in his glorified state. Now, we come down to verse 14. He sees his head and his hair. What are they like? 
Well, they're like wool, as white as snow. And uh, this, again, is kind of uh, depicting some things from the Old Testament as well as the New. And Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days, which would have been God the Father, the hair of his head was white as snow, glistening. So the kind of the idea is, a few weeks ago we had a storm, and uh, when you go out on the road after the storm is over and the sun's shining, it's a good idea to have some sunglasses on, isn't it? Because it's so bright, it's so glistening. So this is the way he sees the Son of Man. And uh, uh, the Son of Man in the Old Testament in Daniel 7 was coming into his kingdom, was going to receive his everlasting kingdom. And now it appropriately describes the Son of Man who is being uh, shown to John coming into that glorious kingdom. So this identifies the eternal nature of God the Father with that of God the Son and also his wisdom and his infinite understanding. Now he goes on to explain his eyes. They're not brown, they're not blue, they're not green. They're a flame of fire. Now, if we were to say you were angry and you had fire in your eyes, you would know what we meant. But when we see the, the eyes of the Lord Jesus as fiery eyes, uh, we are seeing him in his wrath, in his anger, not towards his people, but toward those who have rejected him and become his enemies. So the fire speaks of judgment, of discernment, and the fierce recompense that God will bring through him on his enemies. His eyes are described the same way in chapter 19 when he returns, when he comes again, and that reflects again the fire of his wrath. Then we have a description of his feet. And again, uh, not what we would normally uh, uh, think of when you look at somebody's feet, but it says they were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Now we're not clear on the meaning of that totally but the idea here is a metal uh, probably bronze uh, put into a fiery furnace it glows uh, when it gets to a certain temperature and the idea here is the the burnishing or the polishing effect the brightness of the effect and that's what's focused on here the purity of the metal when it gets to that point So this may suggest to us the purity of Christ's judgment, which stems from his knowledge of who his enemies are, and his judgment is always just, is always true. People get exactly what they deserve, nothing more, nothing less. Unlike human judgment, which sometimes can be uh, skewed, sometimes can be corrupted. Then we hear again his voice. And what's his voice like? It's like the sound of many waters. So it's a roaring sound. Most of us have visited Niagara Falls. And we know how loud that sounds as the river um, goes over uh, the edge and plummets down the precipice. And it's just a deafening roar. 
So put in that context of a person speaking to you like that. Kind of reminds us uh, back in the Old Testament when the Lord spoke to his people from Mount Sinai, which was thundering and lightning and firing at the top of the mountain. And they were so afraid, they told Moses, tell them to quit talking to us. So this is the roar of Christ's voice, which is authoritative, it's powerful, it's of such force that it's irresistible. And, of course, people will bow at its command. We then have described there is something in his right hand. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. Later, he reveals these seven stars as seven angels or messengers of the churches. And the right hand is the, the, uh, the hand, the arm of authority, of power, of control. So he has authority over those messengers. He controls them. And then we see this familiar figure of his mouth, and out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword. Now the sword's a weapon, a weapon of war, a weapon of death, a weapon of destruction, a weapon of judgment. And the word of God is described elsewhere uh, by the author of Hebrews as powerful and able to cut to the heart with its truth. When Christ returns again in chapter 19, when he comes, there will be a sword uh, coming out of his mouth. And of course, this is the word of God. It's figurative of language. And it means that Christ will strike his enemies with the words of his mouth, with his powerful roaring voice. And we'll experience that someday. The last thing that John describes is the Lord's countenance or his face. And again, uh, not the color of his eyes, not the shape. He's looking at at, uh, the effulgence of glory that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. His countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. Now we are warned to not look at our sun some 93 million miles away, on a bright, shining, sunning day without something to protect your eyes. And this is the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, like the sun shining in its full strength. It's something that uh, a normal believer can uh, scarce take in. And this is what John sees. He is so awed by all of this, that he responds in a similar fashion as others who have seen this uh, in the Old Testament times. He falls down before the vision of the Lord, and he is as motionless as death itself. So we have to assume he's weakened by awe and fear as he glimpses Christ in his glory And you have to remember, he's still in his weak and and bodily form, not a glorified form. But we find that the Lord himself revives his servant. And that's the third aspect of John's vision, that the Alpha and the Omega comforts his weakened servant. Well, how does he do that? How does he encourage John as he just falls flat down like so many others who have 
been exposed to the glory of God? Well, we see three ways in which he's comforted. First of all, by virtue of his comforting word. John says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying me so to me, Do not be afraid. Fear not. So the, the Lord again reveals himself now in those I am statements. And we'll get that there in a moment. But Jesus comes to him and imagine the comfort of that touch. Now he's just seen the power of the right hand holding what appears to be seven stars in it, the right hand of authority and power, which is capable of destroying his enemies. And with that hand, he touches his his weakened saint, and he strengthens him in this time of need. And his words are words recited elsewhere in Scripture. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Even though you've seen this uh, image of me in glorious power, remember that I'm working on behalf of the saints, not against them as I will uh, with my future enemies. And John had every reason to fear when he saw the Lord in this way, but Christ's comfort enables him to carry on. And he enables us to carry on in our times of fear and difficulty as well. Secondly, he comforts him by virtue of his everlasting nature. And again, revealing himself in these statements, I am, I am this. Well, what does he say? Remember, I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning. I'm the ending. I'm everything that you need. There's nothing that occurs outside of my purpose and plan. And right now, my plan is for you to see me in this, uh, this way. And he goes on to say, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. So here we're reminded again of the work of Christ. I am he who is the ever-living one. Yes, he did die physically. He had to die physically. He had to pay the atonement for our sins. But his spirit did not die, and his body did not stay dead. His body was raised up in glorified power. Death could not hold him in. And then he says to John, Behold, or look, I am alive forevermore. Now, we have to remember that John had been living with this hope for about 65 years since the resurrection of Christ. He had seen the Lord transfigured. He had seen the Lord die on the cross. He had seen the Lord laid in the tomb. He had seen the Lord in his resurrected body and ascending back up into heaven. But since then... He has not seen the Lord in a physical sense. He's looking forward to all those promises. But God gives him this ability to see Christ in his um, exalted state and bless him with that. So John uh, has the privilege of seeing Christ in his full glory 
and it will, that's a glory that will never fade away. He's alive forevermore. And when he saw this, uh, uh, he wrote it down, and it's here to encourage us today as well. No matter what goes on in the world, the Lord is alive. He always will be alive, and he'll receive us one day. Now, the last thought here is that he comforts his saint by virtue of his power over death. In verse 18, he says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. So that means the Lord Jesus possesses the keys of life or death. Keys open doors, they lock doors, they shut doors. Now he mentions two things here. He mentions Hades. This is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Sheol, which means the grave. And the grave alludes to the place of the dead, like a cemetery. And in that sense, it means that all people are going to the realm of the dead, physically speaking. But it also refers to the place of those who die without Christ, a place separated from glory, a place of suffering and pain. And Jesus described this in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man is in this place called Hades, and Lazarus is in another place called Paradise. They can see each other, but they can't uh, relate to each other. And in that place, in Hades, uh, the rich man desires a drop of water to relieve his condition for a split second of time. So it's a place of the unsaved dead, a holding place until the great white throne of judgment where then they will be cast into hell or the lake of fire. And Christ holds the keys to where a person's going to be for all of eternity. He has the power to release people from death and hell Everyone is destined to die, to go to the place of the dead, so to speak, Hades. But uh, those who trust him as Savior, uh, their souls will be with him in paradise, in glory, in heaven. Because he paid the eternal debt of their sins. So for them, Christ opens the gates of the grave so they may enter the gates of heaven. But for those who refuse, those who reject, they're forever locked in that place of doom. There's no greater comfort than to know that he has the keys of uh, death and hell in his hands, and he has released us from those places to be with him in glory. So what do we draw from this depiction of the exalted Lord in John's revelation. Well, let's think of a couple of things. First of all, we know these things are true because they're inspired by God. The Lord Jesus gave him this revelation. 
And since he's incapable of lying, all that he reveals will surely come to pass, even though we don't fully comprehend and understand it, it's going to happen. Secondly, because the Lord Jesus is exalted in glory, he controls every circumstance, every trial, every hardship of life, and he can grow us and use us for his glory, no matter what those circumstances might be. Then we can ask a question. Do you ever envision what it will be like to see Christ face to face? John describes our exalted Lord as a righteous judge, but we're not going to face him in that way. We're going to see him in that capacity when we return with him uh, to conquer his foes and control the world, but we're going to see him more as the uh, the Lamb of God who was slain for our redemption. Do we think about that day? Do we, do we uh, yearn to be with our exalted Lord? And finally, when we do experience those times of trouble or affliction or fear, we can be comforted by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his life-giving work and the truth that we are never going to experience eternal death. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We're thankful, Lord, for your glory, which you now exist in. Lord, we can't fully see that except through the eyes of Scripture, but we're thankful, Lord, that one day we will. Lord, help us to uh, work for that day, to yearn for that day, and experience the things that John saw in this revelation. And Lord, as we come before the table, help us to be thankful that it's through your work that we uh, do not have to fear death, the grave, and uh, hell. So Lord, we just pray you'll comfort us and encourage us with these things this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.